Today's scripture reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 1, 2, and 12. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Lord your God endures forever. If you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we are doing uh, a series on the Ten Commandments, and every week we're taking a look at one commandment, and today we are taking a look at the Fifth Commandment uh, specifically. And one of the things that we've been saying at the beginning of uh, each of these sermons is that the point of the Ten Commandments is not so that we could live a boring life or a life without any fun, but the point of the Ten Commandments is so that we can live a life where we thrive, uh, where we actually flourish as individuals and as a society. Uh, the number one best-selling book right now on Amazon and the fourth best-selling book in our country right now uh, is a book entitled 12 Rules for Life uh, by a professor named Jordan Peterson. 12 Rules, not for death, but for life. And it's one of the best-selling books uh, in our country today. The New York Times has uh, 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 said that Peterson is the most influential public individual in the Western world right now. Now, some of you know who Peterson is. Others of you have never heard of Jordan Peterson, while others of you know who he is, but disagree with his ideology and his worldview. And I want you to know that the, the reason why I'm mentioning this book is not to condone it, or to condemn it, but the reason why I'm mentioning this book is because the book is called 12 Rules for Life. And so I want to read you an excerpt from the, fo uh, from the foreword of this book uh, that's written by a scientist and a poet named Norman Doidge, which can be found on the first page of uh, your bulletin. Let me read that for us. Deutsch says, rules? More rules, really? People don't clamor for rules, even in the Bible. When Moses uh, comes down the mountain bearing the tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments and finds the children of Israel in revelry, now free at last, they are unbridled and have lost all control as they dance wildly around an idol, a golden calf, displaying all manner of corporeal corruption. And Moses says, I've got some good news. And I've got some bad news. The lawgiver yells to them, which do you want first? The good news, the hedonists reply. I got them from 15 commandments down to 10. Hallelujah, cries the unruly crowd. And the bad? Adultery is still in. So rules there will be, but please, not too many. We are ambivalent about rules, even when we know they are good for us. If we are spirited souls... Rules seem restrictive and affront to our sense of agency. Why should we be judged according to another's rule? After all, God didn't give Moses the ten suggestions. He gave commandments. And if I'm a free agent, my first reaction to a command might just be that nobody, not even God, tells me what to do, even if it's good for me. But the story of the golden calf also reminds us that without rules, we quickly become slaves to our passions. And there's nothing freeing about that. And the story suggests something more unchaperoned, 
and left to our own untutored judgment, we are quick to aim low and worship qualities that are beneath us. In this case, an artificial animal that brings out our own animal instincts in a completely unregulated way. The old Hebrew story makes it clear how the ancients felt about our prospects for civilized behavior in the absence of rules that seek to elevate our gaze and raise our standards. The reason why I'm mentioning this book is because this book is a non-religious book about rules. And here, it's talking about how rules are good for us and not bad for us. And I would say similarly, that is the purpose and the point of the Ten Commandments. They are not given to us to enslave us or so that we will live a restricted life in a tight straitjacket, but they're given to us as individuals and as a society so that we can not only survive, uh, but also thrive. And the Ten Commandments can be broken down into two sections. The first four have to deal vertically with our relationship with God. Commandments 5 through 10 have to deal horizontally with our relationship with one another. This is the reason why when Jesus was asked the question, Teacher, uh, what is the greatest commandment? What was Jesus' response? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what he was doing there was summarizing the Ten Commandments as loving God and loving our neighbor. And today, we're going to be taking a look at the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and mother. The fifth commandment is the hinge that opens up the Ten Commandments from loving God into loving other people. And the fifth commandment begins with perhaps the most difficult and easiest people to love, and that is our fathers uh, and our mothers. Now, for some of us, this commandment is very, very easy because we have very honorable parents. And so it's very easy to respect them and to give honor to them because of how they treat us. And yet for others of us, the fifth commandment is a difficult commandment because it is fraught with a lot of emotional complexity. How do you honor someone that has treated you so dishonorably? How do you honor someone that has physically abused you? How do you honor someone that has verbally abused you? How do you honor someone that always has their arms folded with a posture of critique and never approving of what you've done? How do you honor someone that disapproves of the person that you've married? How do you honor someone that disapproves of the career path you have chosen? For many of us, this commandment is asking us to go to a place that is very emotionally painful. And yet when you take a look at this commandment, there are no clauses in smaller font. It doesn't say honor your father and mother except when they dishonor you, except when they disapprove of you, except when they disagree with you. There are no clauses. It simply says, honor your father and mother. And still, it gets even more complex because in Ephesians, Paul says, children, obey your parents. But what if I'm not a child anymore? What if I'm an adult? How do I honor my parents as an adult, especially if I disagree with them and I don't think that they're right, and now I actually have more money and more power than they do. I don't really need them anymore. They're dispensable. So how do I honor my mother and father then? A generation ago, C.S. Lewis wrote the book, The Four Loves, and in The Four Loves, Lewis talked about how our parents oftentimes act and behave in worse ways 
than children do. And it was not lost on Lewis that sometimes parents can be very, very difficult. I want to read you a quote uh, that has been attributed to Mark Twain, although no one is exactly sure. Uh, but this is what uh, this person says. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. And oftentimes, that can be our mentality and our perspective of our mother and father. So here is the question. How do we obey the fifth commandment so that we can thrive? How do we honor our fathers and our mothers? Well, the word honor means to give weight to something. You know, every time I hear that, uh, that definition, it still sounds very abstract to me. What does it mean to give weight to someone? And so one helpful way of considering what that means is to think about the opposite of that. To dishonor someone means to treat them very lightly. When you understand that, now there's more weight to what it means to give somebody weight. So what does it look like to honor our father and mother? Well, honor begins on the inside and it manifests itself on the outside. Honor is giving someone respect, Honor is listening to someone. Honor is sacrificing for someone. Honor is forgiving someone. And most of all, honor is understanding that love is spelled T-I-M-E, time. And so one of the things I want to do to make this as concrete as possible is I'm going to give four examples of how we can honor our father and mother And the reason why I want to give four examples of this is because there is no one-size-fits-all way of honoring our parents. It is highly, highly contextual to the individual. But let me give four examples from my own life of how to honor our father and mother. And by the way, uh, father and mother doesn't just mean our biological parents, but it means all authority figures to a certain degree. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in our prayer of confession, underneath the assurance of pardon from 1 John, what does John say? My dear children. Why does he say children? Is he writing the letter to children? Of course not. He's writing to adults. But he calls them children because he's their spiritual father and they're his spiritual children. And so what this commandment is talking about is, you know, even if your parents, both parents may have passed, you're not uh, free from this commandment. It's talking about all authority figures, disciples, mentors, pastors, uh, authority figures in your life you are called to honor. So what does it look like to honor our father and mother? Well, a couple months ago, uh, I had the opportunity to visit my aunt who just became a widow. And uh, I had the opportunity to see how she was doing. And uh, as we were talking together, we were just reminiscing about old times and... um, my aunt, um, my aunt was a doctor. She had to retire early because she had three boys. Her husband, my uncle, was an anesthesiologist, so they were quite wealthy. Uh, her youngest brother, uh, they, they have, uh, she, she had two other siblings. Her youngest brother was my father. And uh, we weren't even close to the financial status they were. And so every time she would see me, she would buy me the same exact clothes that she would buy for her own sons because we were all around the same age. And she would always slip me a $20 bill. To this day, she still does that. 
she gave me a white envelope just two months ago. And so we were reminiscing about old times. And, and we used to go to this beach house that they owned every summer. And it's there that I fell in love with the ocean. And she and my grandmother, who is now 95 years old, they would take care of seven of us kids. Five of us were boys with an insatiable hunger, and we just could never sit still. But for two months, they watched seven of us. Two months. That's asking a lot. And so I had a very, as we were laughing and talking hysterically about it, she, she said to me, now you understand. Now you get it. And that conversation opened a very small opportunity for me to sincerely say thank you for a debt that I could never, ever repay her. It was a small, small way of honoring her. Let me give you another example. My sister lives in Brooklyn, and almost every weekend, she goes to visit my aunt and my grandmother in the boondocks of central New Jersey. She takes public transportation all the way down there almost every weekend. And to this day, to this day, she still sleeps with my grandmother on the same bed, just like she used to when she was a kid. It's a small way of honoring my 95-year-old grandmother because love is spelled T-I-M-E. Let me give you a third example. When Hannah and I were dating, and even early on when we were married, um, uh, she would talk to her parents, and sometimes she would agree with them, sometimes she would disagree, sometimes she would put her foot down, sometimes she wouldn't put her foot down, and I would always ask her why. And she would often say to me, well, you don't understand my parents. Well, now I finally understand her parents, and now I get why she said what she said. I understand why she didn't say what she didn't say. I get why she didn't put her foot down on this issue because it was her way of honoring her mother and her father. Let me give you a fourth example. Uh, my mother, um, I, I uh, try to FaceTime my mother uh, almost every week at the latest every 12 days. And the reason why I try to do that is because my mom has been separated now for over 30 years, and she never lived with her own kids. And so one of the small ways I tried to honor her uh, is by FaceTiming her with my own granddaughters, because even though we were absent from her life, I don't want her grandkids to be absent from her life. And so almost every week, we. Uh, we FaceTime so that she gets some, uh, you know, a visual interaction with her grandkids because she lives two hours away in Philadelphia. Now, I know that every time I FaceTime my mother, she's going to give me unsolicited advice on how to parent my own kids. I know that every time I FaceTime her, she's going to tell me what books to read and what blogs to read and that her stuff is better than my stuff. And I roll my eyes inevitably. I know she's going to lecture me every single time. And yet I try my hardest to do it as much as possible because it is my way of honoring her. So four concrete examples of how we can honor our mothers and our fathers. Now let's go a little bit deeper. How do we honor our father and mother if they have acted so dishonorably to us? Now this is a little bit tougher, isn't it? How do we honor someone that we have a broken relationship with? How do we honor someone that we disrespect? Well, there's a, uh, uh, an expression used in the military that
that says, salute the uniform. And what that means is that even though you might disrespect the person underneath the uniform, you still salute the uniform. And similarly, even though you might disrespect your mother and father, you still salute and you still honor motherhood and you still salute and honor fatherhood because one day you may become a mother and father and, as well. But still, even still, it's still difficult to honor motherhood and fatherhood when you know who is underneath uh, the motherhood and fatherhoodness. And one of the reasons why it is so difficult for us to honor them this way is because of the bitterness that we have and possess towards our parents. Bitterness results when we turn our hurt into hate. Bitterness is when we drink poison, expecting the other person to die. Meanwhile, it is our own insides that are burning up with acid. You know what's the most tragic thing about bitterness when you're bitter towards people? When you're bitter towards people and it manifests itself in different ways, radio silence, cutting them off from your life, murdering them over and over and over again in your thoughts, it can manifest itself in different ways. But you know what the most tragic thing about bitterness is? The evil that you have toward the other person, the hatred that you have towards them, it spreads most tragically of all to you. You become worse. You lose life. You don't thrive. You don't even survive. You slowly begin to die. And there is no better person that was able to conquer bitterness and be conquered by love than Martin Luther King Jr. So let me read us a uh, short excerpt from his book, Strength to Love. And MLK says, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate, violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is setting forth a profound and ultimately inescapable admonition. The chain reaction of evil, hate beginning hate, must be broken, or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. And sometimes our enemies are our parents. But the only way to break the cycle uh, of bitterness that we have towards them is by forgiving them and loving them. Another example uh, comes from Nelson Mandela. And he says, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave behind my bitterness and hatred, I'd still be in prison. The only way that we can escape this cycle is by leaving it behind and being conquered by love instead of being conquered by bitterness. Now, let me give two other reasons, two reasons why and how we can honor and find the energy and the power to honor those that may have treated us so dishonorably. You know, the fifth commandment is the only commandment out of the Ten Commandments that is attached to a promise. And so if you take a look at the verse again, it says... Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. 
The, the phrase, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you, is a proverbial expression that is often used throughout wisdom literature. And basically what this expression means poetically is that if you honor your father and mother, things will go better for you in life. In other words, uh, you will begin to thrive. And the reason why you'll thrive more if you do this is because when you honor someone else, you yourself become honorable particularly when you honor someone that you don't think necessarily deserves honor because one day you will be over people, and some of you already are. But the only way to be a good leader that is over people is by first learning how to be under people and sometimes being under people that you might disrespect and sometimes people that you might think doesn't deserve the honor that you think they do. But when you learn to uh, be under those types of people, it is the soil of strength that will help you be a leader, a better leader that is over people. But let me give you a second reason where we can find the motivation and the power to honor those that are dishonorable because the first is a little bit pragmatic and somewhat hedonistic to a certain degree. The second reason why we should honor the dishonorable is because God honors us despite the way that we have lived so dishonorably. One of the most famous parables in the Bible comes from Luke chapter 15, and it is the story of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means extravagantly wasteful. Wasteful in terms of the way that you spend your money, your time, and your life. And the story goes that this particular son, the youngest son, asked for his father's inheritance prematurely. Uh, in the first century world, the only way to get your father's inheritance was if your father died. But his father was still living. And so by the son asking for his father's inheritance prematurely, it was, an, it was a request of disgrace, dishonor, and he was basically wishing his father was dead. But his father acquiesces to his wishes, and the father gives him his inheritance. And the son takes the inheritance, and he moves away from home and squanders it away. And he lives a very prodigal life. He's homeless. He has nowhere to go. He has no community. He has no family. He has no nothing. And seeing that he is going to die in this pig pen, he puts his head down in humility and walks back to his father's home. The pinnacle of this story, the way that Jesus tells it, is that when the father is on the front porch, and he sees his son a long way off. He runs to him. The son doesn't run to the father. The father runs to the son, and he embraces the son. That is a picture of the kind of father that God is to us that no matter how prodigally we have lived our lives, no matter how much we have squandered our lives, no matter how much we have dishonored God, He still looks for us. He still runs to us and is still willing to embrace us only if you would return in humility. You know, one of the interesting things about the idea of God being called the Father, it is unique to Judaism and Christianity alone. The idea that God is our Abba Father is nowhere present in Islam or Hinduism or any other religion. But in the Old Testament, we only see it in seed form 
It isn't until we get to the New Testament and the arrival of Jesus that we see the understanding of God in full bloom, which is why repeatedly throughout the entire Gospels, Jesus always refers to God as his heavenly Father. In fact, he teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer by addressing God as uh, our Father who art in heaven. So over and over again, uh, Jesus is referring to God as his Father. But there is one place in Jesus' life that he never calls God his Father. Do you know where that is? It's at the cross, ironically. When the Son needed his Father the most, he doesn't call him his Father, but he calls him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason why Jesus doesn't address God as his father is because on the cross, Jesus became orphaned. And the reason why Jesus became orphaned is so that we could be adopted into God's family. Jesus became orphaned as our sacrificial lamb because he took all of our sins upon his own shoulders, thereby being cut off in his relationship with God the Father so that we might have a new relationship with God himself. You see, God the Father also has a broken relationship with his children, but the only way of reconciling that relationship was by sending his eldest son, his one and only son, to be our mediator to bring us back to him. You know what's also interesting is that on the cross, there are seven statements that we know about that are recorded. There there may have been more, but in the gospels we know of only seven. You know, what's really, really interesting is that on the cross, one of the seven statements is a statement where Jesus is honoring his mother. On the cross, Jesus tells his best friend, John, John, here is your mother, Mary. And mom, here is your son, John. And what he was saying there is this, I'm about to die, John but please make sure to take care of my mother. Even when Jesus is dying on the cross, he is trying to honor his biological mother. You know, usually the way that we honor people is when they're dying, the dead, at funerals. But here is Jesus dying, and he is trying to honor the living. Now, if you understand the implications of all of this, And what he has done for us, honoring us when we live such dishonorable lives, it has to change the way that you interact with your father and your mother. I'm doing nine weddings this year and next year, and probably more because people are still getting engaged left and right. I'm doing a back-to-back wedding this week on Friday and Saturday. One of the best parts about weddings and one of the reasons why I love them is that there's a specific moment in the wedding service uh, during the ceremony where the, the new bride and groom honor their mother and father. It's one of the few times, uh, one of the few events that we have, one of the very, very few where a mother and father are honored before a large group of people. You know, the idea of honoring a mother and father at a wedding has always been Uh, emotionally complex for me, though, because as I mentioned before, uh, my mother and father have been separated for quite some time, and so I always always imagined that the situation would be somewhat awkward for my mother and father because they would have to sit together, and I knew that we would have to go and honor them, and I knew that inevitably they would be thinking about 
uh, their own marriage and the brokenness that uh, they have uh, experienced. And so it's always been emotionally very complex and uh, awkward for me to think about. And so on my wedding day, uh, when it was time to honor my mother and father, uh, it wasn't as emotionally complex as I had imagined because my father did not attend my wedding. I never got a congratulations, son. Uh, I'm so proud of you. And to this day, he has never met his daughter-in-law or his grandchildren. And let me explain why. Uh, prior to our wedding, when uh, Hannah and I were dating, my father was so happy for me. Uh, you see, he had married a model and the runner-runner up to Miss Korea. My mother is absolutely stunning. But his old boy never brought a girl home for 33 years. And he always thought, what have I done with my son? How have I not raised him the proper way? And so finally, at the age of 33, I said, Dad, I met someone. And when I told him that, he was so overjoyed that he high-fived me 10 times in a row. <laughs> I have never high-fived my dad in my life. But he high-fived me 10 times in a row. And you know what? There is no child that doesn't want the approval of their parents, no matter how old they are. And I remember that my father, in particular, was the happiest person in the world for me. A week later, he moved back to Korea. And since then, uh, I have not heard from him. Um, no phone calls, no FaceTime, no nothing, not even on my wedding day. But you know what? I am not bitter or resentful or angry with my father. Nor is my attitude and perspective when I become a father, I'm going to be the exact opposite of my dad. Because you know what? The older and older I get, the more and more I realize that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I am actually more like him than I care to admit. But my desire isn't to be the antithesis of my father because I am just as broken as he. My desire instead is to be like my heavenly father. And my heavenly father is forgiving, he is loving, he is compassionate, he is empathetic, and because my heavenly father is like that, that's who I want to be like. And so how do I honor someone that I haven't talked to in years? The way that I honor him is by loving him, by forgiving in my heart, not being bitter towards him, and praying for him, that God would heal him from the hurt that I know anguishes his heart. That God alone, that he would know that God alone is the ultimate healer, not the bottle. Because of the way God has treated me, even though I have lived dishonorably, and because he treats me with honor, who am I to judge other people that may live dishonorably. I can't, I have no right whatsoever because of what the gospel does for me. And the more and more you understand that, it changes the way that you live. In fact, it should change the way that you live your life in relationship to your heavenly father. If he honors you, do you honor him? Do you live a life that is honorable or do you live a life that is dishonorable? 
You know that in the New Testament, Jesus flips the fifth commandment upside down, and he actually says, whoever would come after me and be my disciple, he must hate his father and his mother. What's up with that? In the fifth commandment, it says, honor your father and mother, and yet now Jesus is saying, you must hate your mother and father? What does that mean? And what he's saying is this, your love for me as your, as, as your heavenly father must be so intense that all other loves look like hatred. And so if that is the case, do you love God? Do you, does your love for him look so intense that all the other loves look like hatred? Do you understand that your love for him must also be spelled T-I-M-E, or does the majority of your time, is that reserved for yourself? Do you live a life that is honorable to someone that has honored you by dying naked on a cross? And secondly, and I'm going to keep this short because it's a sermon in and of itself, but to our growing parental community, uh, sometimes as mothers and fathers, we have higher expectations of our kids than we do of ourselves. And this is why we have certain kinds of parenting like tiger parenting, helicopter parenting, snowplow parenting. Snowplow parenting is relatively new. It's when you snowplow all the obstacles out of your children's life so that they can live a life of comfort and ease. But there is a different type of parenting that the Bible talks about, and that is godly parenting. Do you know how to be a godly parent, a godly father and mother? Be a godly husband and wife. Do you know how to be a godly husband and wife? Be a godly child of God. Make your own godliness your first and foremost concern, and when you do that, it will spill over into your parenting. But if your own godliness is not your first and foremost concern, and you have higher expectations of your kids than you do of yourself, you are failing. And the reason why I say that is because, parents, you are the first evangelist in your children's life. Discipleship doesn't happen during lunchtime at the school cafeteria. It happens during dinnertime at the dining room table. You are the first evangelist in their life, and how they come to know the Lord is heavily affected by how you live your life in relationship with God and in your relationship with your spouse. You are the first evangelist, and how you live deeply shapes the children that you are raising. And the more you think about how God has honored us and how God is a good, good God, it will change the way that we are, our relationship with our biological fathers and mothers and with our children. We're going to close with a time of communion. And um, uh, during the communion time, if you're new to our church, we always sing a song during this time. And just so you know, the songs that we, we, we select are not accidentally chosen, but they are, are chosen with, uh, with purpose and meaning behind it. And so why don't we sing robustly? Uh, after I pray and Brian introduces the sacraments for us. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, I know that um, for many of us, this commandment is, uh, it might be the, the hardest. Uh, murdering, lying, adultery, all that stuff might seem quite easy in comparison to this. Um, because we know that our parents have to love us. We know that they have to take care of us, and it's their job. But when they fail doing their job, it's, it's quite easy to become bitter and resentful towards them. And so it is my prayer that you would free us 
that you would liberate us, that you would help us to be conquered by the love that you have for us. And may that spill over into our love for our fathers and our mothers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.